Welcome to Gen I Pod, a podcast where we get to have conversations that inspire you. Gen I has been a collaborative effort and forms part of I India Education. So, welcome everyone to this Gen I podcast. My name is Dr. Rahul Chakrabarti. I'm an ophthalmologist in Melbourne. Now, returning to surgery, particularly microsurgical procedures, after a period of absence, can present many challenges to the individual surgeon. There can be an element of motor skill attrition, but also theatre preparation, expectations on behalf of the surgeon and that of the patient, and ultimately we have to bear in mind the safety and optimal patient outcomes that we're trying to achieve. Cataract surgery understandably requires good stereoacuity, spatial awareness, hand, foot and eye coordination, and the ability to use all four limbs simultaneously. We know that surgical simulation provides a safe environment for deliberate practice. We have wet lab where animal eyes, synthetic eyes can be used to rehearse some of the steps of cataract surgery, but it lacks objective assessment. One of the major advancements in this regard has been virtual reality, which we can use to practice almost every step of phacoemulsification apart from creating the corneal wounds. And it has an added advantage of having a component of automated objective assessment. When considering the factors that are involved in assessing someone's competency in returning to surgery, it can be dependent on one's previous experience, personal circumstances, and also surgical confidence. And there's some anecdotal evidence that it may take up to three months for an individual to regain a level of surgical competency after a prolonged break. So today I'll be joined by Dr. Jacqueline Belts, who is a corneal and anterior segment surgeon and also holds the esteemed position of Director of Training for the Victorian Training Program of the Royal Australian New Zealand College of Ophthalmologists. Dr. Belts is an experienced surgeon, but also an ophthalmic educator with a special interest in virtual reality surgical simulation in ophthalmology. And Jackie has done a mountain of work in improving ophthalmic surgical education, not only in Melbourne, but across Australia and New Zealand. And it's really a great privilege to gain her insights today. So thank you, Dr. Jackie Belts, for joining us today. Our topic today will be discussing returning to intraocular surgery. Now, Jackie, you and I have been discussing and planning this since last year, but it's suddenly come to the fore in the advent of the COVID-19 virus. And this has become a very important topic for all ophthalmologists and trainees alike. I'd like to start by asking you, Jackie, what are the factors that make returning to surgery, especially intraocular surgery, after a period of time off, so challenging? Thank you very much for having me, Rahul, and thank you for those kind comments. So returning to surgery after a break is always difficult, but you're right, that difficulty is going to be escalated post-COVID. We're all struggling at the moment, and for everybody, no matter what we do, getting back into normal work is going to bring challenges. As surgeons, the health of our patients always comes first. As you know, since 1st of April, only urgent ophthalmic surgeries have taken place in Australia. I've not operated since then. This situation will likely go on for many months, so we are talking about a significant break. Surgical volumes post-COVID will be high as we try to catch up on the unmet need. I would say for some, this enforced break may have little impact and the surgeons might just get back into it. For others, especially trainees and junior surgeons, there could be a noticeable reduction in the technical or mind skills that are required to perform surgery to a safe and predictably high standard. By the time I had my child, I was an experienced surgeon. I took about eight weeks off from operating. And at the time, I barely noticed the break when I came back. Earlier in my career, though, I really felt it when I came back from even holidays or exam leave of short durations. 
I definitely didn't take off where I'd left off in the first place. And technically speaking, um, that was definitely true, but also mind skills uh, are very important. So looking back, even though I barely noticed a difference on return to operating after maternity leave, I think there was one. I didn't have any complications and my tech skills were fine, but I was nervous, slow and tentative compared to my usual form and slightly distracted as well as my baby was in the room next door. I might not have lost the technical skills, but my mind wasn't right. And I really think we can't operate safely without that. The other issue on return, I think, is the degree of precision that's required for eye surgery. As you know, our margin for error is ridiculously small. We have to get it right every single time. Our patients deserve that. They're trusting us with something super precious. So in retrospect, I shouldn't really have just gone back in feeling rusty or distracted after my maternity leave. I would have liked to train for it, but at the time, nobody was talking about that and I didn't really know how. Thanks, Jackie. That's really fascinating. Uh, You touched on at the end about motor skill attrition, but you also mentioned about some mind skills aspects. So are there other aspects aside from motor skills that one needs to consider when returning to surgery, such as preoperative preparation, uh, decision-making, and so forth? There are. In fact, I think it's those mind skills that really separate a good surgeon from an excellent surgeon. Mind skills are extremely important for surgery. There's been a lot of research done in that area across many surgical specialties, but actually active training in that area is relatively new, especially in ophthalmology. The skill set is often referred to as non-technical skills, but there's been a lot of debate about that term and I don't like it. The term sort of relegates these skills to lesser tier or lesser importance compared to the more glamorous category of technical skills. I see these skill sets as equally important. I use the term mind skills to describe those attributes of a surgeon that don't relate to either knowledge or manual ability. So like you said, skills such as situation awareness, decision-making, communication, teamwork, and leadership are important, and they're the ones that are described in most of the published research, especially the non-technical skills for surgeons taxonomy, which is a skill set developed by the Royal College of Surgeons of Edinburgh, which is really important work, and we might put some of the literature relating to that on the GenEye website for the listeners. Through GenEye, though, we've really elaborated on that category to include a lot more than just those NOTS skills. I'm interested in skills such as psychological flexibility, which is the ability to notice our internal experience and adapt our behaviour to meet situational demands, having a growth mindset rather than a fixed, and looking after our own personal psychological well-being and that of our colleagues and team. I think they have an immense effect on surgical outcomes as well as our day-to-day fulfilment, enjoyment and happiness. As we've started to work on training in all of these mind skill areas, I've really seen improvement amongst our trainees, but also within myself as an already experienced surgeon. If you think about it, you'll have heaps of examples of putting these skills to use. Of course, there's the whole surgical planning side and surgery is just not ever going to be successful without forward planning and good judgment. But lots of other examples come to mind for me. Think about surgery when you have an agency nurse. The team will usually get the agency nurse to scrub as he or she won't know where anything is to scout. The thing is, though, that nurse won't know you or your techniques. And as a surgeon, that will immediately make you uncomfortable. The ability to realise that that nurse is also feeling uncomfortable and doing his or her best is a skill. 
one comment can take things from bad to worse, whereas a little understanding that they're also in a new environment, nervous and worried, can put them at ease, increase their performance and therefore yours and result in a better outcome for your patient. Put that nurse on edge though by being in a half or worse rude and they'll only become more nervous and flustered, which certainly is not going to help you to stay calm, concentrate and focus. So I really think awareness of these skills is critical. Last year, we developed a structured program for our second year trainees, as well as some key fellows and consultants concentrating on development of mind skills and well-being. The program ran over two consecutive half days. On the second day, one of the attendees came in absolutely glowing, and when we spoke about our experiences, he said that he had operated the afternoon before and that the program had directly helped his patient. His story was that as a high volume and efficient surgeon, he had concentrated better than he ever had before. He said our mindfulness work had really helped him, and for the first time he operated with his phone turned off, asked his team not to distract him and just concentrated. I know we would like to think that as surgeons we all do that anyway, but he noticed that he did it better than usual. Right at the end of one of his cases, he paused for a breath before taking out the speculum, and he noticed that one haptic of the IOL was not in the capsular bag. That's a quick and easy fix because he noticed it, but had he not, that would have been a return to theatre for that patient. Maybe he would have noticed it normally, but he really didn't think that he would have. The thing about taking a break from surgery is that our technical skills might or might not fade, depending on our experience, but these other skills definitely fade. It takes an extreme level of focus to be a surgeon. I would liken each surgical list to an athlete needing to be match fit. Athletes peak and trough according to their schedules, and we do too. If I was a patient, I would want my surgeon to be at a peak, not a trough. So we need to train and work on these areas. Jackie, that's just absolutely fascinating, and it's, it's a really engaging discussion. And I strongly encourage our audience to visit or read on the non-technical skills um, literature, um, which I think and I agree with you should be called mind skills um, because it shouldn't be demeaned in any way. I was wanting to ask you, what are some of the forums, including but virtual reality, by which uh, ophthalmologists and trainees can practice or rehearse some of these aspects that you've touched on? You mentioned simulation earlier, and that's always been important for surgeons. It's nothing new. In fact, even back at the start of surgery, the barber surgeons would take cadavers home to practice on. These days, though, we have so many tools and so much technology available to us. And as you mentioned, virtual reality is a really important one. I think it's important to note right from the outset that it's not the fidelity or how realistic a simulation model is that makes it useful. It's the skills acquired through use of that model. This is important for all models of simulation, even virtual reality, which is about as realistic as it gets, as nothing's going to replace the real thing. When I'm training in simulation, I don't expect it or even want it to be the same as in real life. It doesn't have to be. I just want myself or the person that I'm training to get better at a task or to develop the skills that they're going to need to be able to do that task in real life. It's a really important consideration as without that understanding or attitude, I just don't think simulation's useful. As you know, since the start of 2018, we've used virtual reality simulators called IC by VR Magic to train our surgeons at the Eye India. We have two simulators and using those the surgeons see the intraocular surgical field through the operating microscope. The view's in stereo and offers realistic depth of field. Focus and zoom can be altered by using the foot pedal just like in real surgery. 
The instrument hand pieces are inserted through incisions in the model eye and the surgeon can operate either temporarily or superiorly. These simulators provide surgeons with a high fidelity simulation of the setup, equipment and skills required for live intraocular surgery. This system has been incorporated into many training programs around the world, so it's certainly not just us that are using it. We are in particular proud to incorporate this technology into a structured program, and we also continue to use other wet and dry simulation models and a high standard of teaching and supervision to develop what we believe to be an inclusive, thorough means for preparation of trainees for live intraocular surgery. Certain factors like pressures on training programs, reduced training and teaching time, operating theatre cost and efficiency requirements, increased number and complexity of procedures, patient awareness or resistance to taking part in training, and an overall focus on reducing error and cost relating to medical care have led to increasing pressures on surgical training programs over the last few years. Virtual reality simulation is one method by which we aim to address some of these impacts at the IONEA and around the world. We believe this program to allow our trainees to practice in a safe, ethical, repeatable and low-pressure environment, whilst increasing their skills to the level required for live surgical practice. Evidence is now very clear that access to virtual reality simulators reduces complications in ophthalmology. In 2009, Rogers et al. reported that implementation of a structured surgical curriculum including VR simulation had resulted in a significant almost 50% reduction of ophthalmic resident cataract surgery complication rates. More evidence has followed, but most recently, John Ferris and his group from UK have published a huge paper in BJO outlining a significant reduction in posterior capsule tears, as well as a cost-benefit data on trainees having access to simulators. All of this work, as well as our experience at the INEA, leads to no doubt that virtual reality training is an essential part of training these days. It's just not appropriate to practice in any other way, especially not on real-life people. Jackie, thank you for that amazing topic. And underpinning the concept of simulation is a term called deliberate practice. Can you elaborate on this concept of deliberate practice and its relevance to surgical uh, preparation? Yes, sure. So deliberate practice is a term that refers to a special type of practice that is purposeful and systematic. So we're all used to practicing stuff and regular practice might include mindless repetitions, but deliberate practice requires focused attention and it's conducted with the specific goal of improving performance. The way that we incorporate this into our training and our surgical performance is heavily dependent on simulation not just virtual reality simulation, but that's an easy example to use. We could use our simulators in a number of ways. One way is just to have the simulators and by doing that to think that our trainees have a high level of training. That would allow them to go and practice whenever they like. Some might be focused enough or experienced enough for deliberate practice, whereas others might just have a crack, not really know what to do or give up. Because our program has structure, whereby trainees need to complete certain tasks in certain order and achieve certain scores, and because our program is closely supervised with much of the sim training time supervised one to four, this is much more encouraging for deliberate improvement. The inbuilt feedback provided by the system also helps with this a lot. Deliberate practice during a surgical downtime, or at least towards the end of that downtime, could be expected to bring us back near the level that we were when we left surgery. An example of this is that I have nine first-year trainees who have just completed their simulation requirements. They're just on the cusp of being signed off to go into real live surgical practice. Their requirements are really hard to achieve. They have to complete a whole structured education program with a lot of lab work and simulation. 
but they also have to complete a whole lot of embedded surgical curriculum in the virtual reality platform and then perform five cataract surgeries in a row in VR in under 15 minutes each without any score dropping below 80%. That's super difficult and I'm sorry to tell you, Rahul, but you or I probably wouldn't be able to do that. They can do it because they practice so hard, deliberately and purposefully over a short period of time. They would usually come to see me to discuss their progress and if we all agree that they're ready to go into theatre soon, then we sign them off. That won't be happening for them now, but it's still a great achievement. We can't just assume that in three months or six months, those trainees will still be at the same level. They won't even be able to get that score once by then, but I expect that they'll get back to that level quickly. So we'll develop a program for them to return them to that point of their learning curves that they're at now. And through deliberate practice using virtual reality simulation, we should be able to do that pretty quickly. Fantastic. Thank you, Jackie. That's a, a really um, an important concept that you've uh, really explained in a nice way. Um, just to conclude, uh, for our broader audience, uh, what would you suggest as some practical tips that you do, for example, outside of hospital in day-to-day life or maybe when you're at home or um, in the office, away from the luxury of having a simulator or being in, in theatre to help maintain your knowledge, um, your microsurgical dexterity. I've read about you know people practising peeling a grape at home or, or brushing their teeth with the other hand. Uh, are there any practical tips that, that you have and are there some resources that uh, people can refer to? Mm, there's so much stuff. I love ophthalmology, specifically surgery, and I'm always trying to get better at it and learn new things. I mainly work on knowledge and learning new skills, as now that I'm experienced, maintaining dexterity comes fairly easily. In terms of dexterity, though, I used to work on that a lot, playing sports left-handed, brushing my teeth with my non-dominant hand, non-dominant hand chopsticks challenges, etc. That's all pretty fun, and especially fun as a microsurgeon to be better at that stuff than most of your friends. Knowledge-wise, though, I attend a lot of conferences. I'm usually there to teach or to take part in events, but I always make time to attend the cataract surgery video sessions. Watching other people's videos, especially of complications, is invaluable. If you can't attend in person, these sessions are often available online later. I'm a member of OSCRIS, ASCRIS, ESCRIS, American Academy of Ophthalmology, International Society of Refractive Surgeons, and RANSCO, amongst others, and these all have their own educational sections. Reading journals is important. iTube and YouTube are invaluable. We've all learnt new tips from there. My friend Evo Ferreira has an amazing website, ophthalmicuniversita.com, aimed at cataract surgery education. And since COVID-19, his virtual classroom format has been amazing. I also utilise my personal network extensively, discussing cases with a colleague before and after, especially if the case was complicated, is really important to me. Lastly, I think actual peer-to-peer learning is underutilised in ophthalmology. Last year, I went into OT with a colleague and we critiqued each other's surgery, which whilst a bit nerve-wracking at first, soon became routine and I found it to be really useful. We could do a whole episode on that question, Rahul. Well, this has truly been a fascinating discussion on a very contemporary and real issue for many of us. Uh, I'd like to thank you, Dr. Jacqueline Belts, for your time and dedication to ophthalmic education. We hope you enjoy this GenEye podcast as well. As always, useful resources will be uploaded to the GenEye website. So there you have it. Rahul and I talking about some factors that we think might be important now that we finally have the all clear to resume some elective surgeries in 2020. Some of these factors I believe to be important all the time. 
not just after breaks. So I hope you've got something out of this or at least found the discussion interesting or thought-provoking. Next week, I will talk to Jo Mitchell and her team from The Mind Room. Mind Room is a health, well-being and performance psychology practice based in Collingwood, Melbourne. At The Mind Room, they believe that when people know more about how their minds work, they suffer less and live more meaningful, connected and satisfying lives. We've been working together with Jo and her team for some time now, and we know that this applies to surgery every bit as much as it does for other industries or other areas of high performance. Through our conversation next week, we hope to share some quality psychological knowledge and tools to empower you, Gen I, to not just survive but thrive in the high-pressure industry within which we work. As The Mind Room says, get to know your mind. It's amazing. Please subscribe to this podcast so that we can continue to deliver episodes to you that hopefully are interesting and inspiring. Also, if you have time, please check out our website, geni.org.au.